0: You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Union Road Presbyterian Church. For more information, join us on Facebook or visit our website at unionroad.org.uk. I'm going to give you a bit of a chance here this morning because we've read from two passages in the Old Testament Prophets today. And one is probably more familiar than the other. You probably can find Isaiah quicker than finding Hosea. So I'll give you a moment to find those two passages that we're going to refer to today, Hosea chapter 11 and Isaiah chapter 6. Please have that ready in front of you because that's going to be our focus today. And our title this morning, again, as Among Us, Jesus is continually drawn towards us. A quick Google search of the term hell leads you to a whole range of news headlines from the last 18 months. From the Daily Star's Do Whatever the Hell You Want Dominic Cummings' mask printed on the 27th of May in response to the former aide of the Prime Minister who was found to have broken those travel restrictions. Remember when he traveled in the first lockdown to Durham and tested to see if ice, his eyesight was supposedly what it should be heading out the end of Bishop Auckland. And the whole idea that the Daily Star joined, well, listen, if you're in government, you can do whatever the hell you want. And then there was a feature article in the Guardian newspaper just a couple of weeks after that that declared the economy is going to hell. And of course, you wouldn't be surprised how many other news reports that I find that describe this last year and the experiences of so many people as being a bit like hell. The disappointments of cancellation culture. But what does the Bible mean when we read about hell? Would we or the journalists we read use the word so freely if we fully understand what it actually meant? Is it simply a term of derision, a place of pain? What is hell? Let me begin by, first of all, just saying a word about hell. For we will only appreciate Jesus' love towards us and among us when we recognize that the pain that he experienced for us. Here's a definition of hell. Hell is a place where men and women experience the undiluted anger of God. Why do I add the word undiluted to that description? Why not just say the place where men and women experience the anger of God? Well, it's because we can all experience God's anger on this side of eternity. Yes, even here on earth before we die. But it's not hell, but he does discipline us. God can discipline us and even punish us. He can rebuke his church in her feelings. He can abandon whole nations to their sin, letting them suffer and bring down arrogant men and women who preen themselves like gods on the world stage. Just read the Old Testament book of Daniel or the very first chapter of Romans to see how that looks. If humanity chooses to reject God and live without God, then God often gives people over to their own sinful choices with deadly consequences on this side of eternity. He does that personally. If we choose to go our own way, he says, well, if you've chosen to go your way, I will hand you over to your own sin. Or nationally, as a people, if we turn our backs against God, well, I'm going to hand you over as a nation experience the punishment you deserve for turning your back on me. But all of that anger against sin in this world is diluted. We cannot experience hell on earth because God's common grace is at work around us and for us. No matter how bad people think they've got it here, it is not hell. It is always mixed with God's blessings the blessings of life and breath, and, of course, the greatest blessing of the opportunity that these days afford to us of grace, still time to repent from our sin and seek Jesus Christ as Savior. Jonathan Edwards, the old American Puritan, wrote, "...the wrath of God is like great waters that are dammed up for the present. But in hell, that dam will be released." and the unstoppable waters of judgment against sin will flow forever and ever. But here's the thing. God never sends people to hell out of spite. It's not something that gives God pleasure. God doesn't gloat over human misery or delight in revenge. He doesn't want anyone to perish. As Scottish theologian, Donald MacLeod, puts it, in fact, the terrible thing about hell is that it puts God in an impossible position. Why do you make me do this? It's almost like he asks. He does it only because it is what sin deserves. And when that dreadful moment comes, God will listen carefully to every plea. He will not condemn us unless he absolutely has to. If we can destroy, honestly say, that we had no chance or that it was done in ignorance or that we were led astray or that we never knew his law and never heard his gospel and that no one ever told us of Jesus, then God will listen to us with holy patience. I can give you a categorical assurance. No innocent man ever went to hell. That's reassuring, isn't it? No innocent man ever went to hell. But here's the rub. None of us is innocent. Therefore, God is perfectly within his rights to send us all, all, to the hell that we deserve. And if we're sitting, shifting in our seats, on our sofas at home today as we talk about hell, it's usually because we haven't understood the serious nature of our condition. We are all on such good terms with ourselves, aren't we? We defend ourselves against every accusation, but there's only one way to know that we are sinners, and that is to be confronted by God. That's why we read from Isaiah 6 this morning. Isaiah, who many would have said was a good man in a very bad generation. He was a religious man, and yet he was completely unraveled in the presence of God in the temple that day, we would say to him, he was done. God's glory made Isaiah's goodness look like filth, and it made him curl up and almost die with the sight of God's, not God himself, but just God's robes. He didn't even see God's face to face. He just saw his robes, and that was enough to make him curl up and die. And as Isaiah is confronted with this and his people's sins, they are sinful, he says, verse 5 in chapter 6 of Isaiah, because of their mouths, their lips. And we don't know what that might be. It might have been their gossip, their pride. It might have been the fact they kept coming to the temple to worship with their lips, but their hearts were far from them, you know, singing God's praise without ever really meaning it. Whatever sin it was... Isaiah's life was exposed in its entirety before God, and he fell down. Verse 5. Let me put it really simply. We don't feel the weight of our sin or that we deserve hell because of our sin. It's our sin that holds us back from seeing how sinful we actually are. We've put up wonderful defense mechanisms. If we saw how ugly our sin was from the perspective of a holy God, we'd be left in absolutely no doubt that hell should be our eternal home. A black hole of disorder, chaos and pain, completely devoid of anything good. It is the utter darkness of lovelessness. And we sinners have put God in the impossible position that He has no option but to condemn us. And that is such a dreadful thing. But you may be thinking, God only inflicts hell, and He knows nothing of its horror. How dare our God condemn anyone to such torment? Does He really care? There He is, judging from the safety and security of heaven. He's out there somewhere. How dare He send us to somewhere like that? What does He know? But that is forgetting. Forgetting. The Jesus that we've been considering over these past few weeks. Not just as the God who came among us, but as the God, God the Son, who descended to hell for us. As Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me at Golgotha? It was the cry of a condemned and a ruined man. That was hell. As he drowned in the cesspool of our sin, at the cross Jesus cried out to God, but got no answer. He cried out to God the Father, but God the Father was not there for him. He endured that moment of hellish agony, not knowing God loved him. He suffered the terrible disorientation that cries, Why? Why? And that's where God's own son was, in the great unanswered why, standing before God as the sin of the world. And here we must see that this is where justice and mercy meet. God's holiness collides in Christ at the cross. His hatred for sin of the world and His love for the people of the world are all concentrated and collide, crash catastrophically, hellishly at the cross. Jesus' death at the cross is proof that God will not let sin go unpunished. He did not even spare His own sinless Son who carried the weight of our sin in those unimaginable hours of darkness. Sin is the demonstra- Christ, rather, is the demonstration of what sin deserves, of what hell involves. Let me make this really personal because all of you in both congregations know hell is not something I preach Regularly, but I preach it as it comes up in Scripture. But God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are seeking your salvation. God the Father sent the Son. God the Son laid down His life. God the Holy Spirit loves us and moves among us as we open His Word and as you hear it proclaimed The Holy Spirit is moving in your hearts and homes today, but you can either choose to listen to Him or ignore Him How then can you go to hell? It will be a choice of yours if you go to hell by rejecting news of such a loving God. The most terrible thing that any of us might ever hear is that moment when you stand before God and He turns to you and asks, Did you hear of my love? Did you ever hear of my Christ? Did you ever hear of the cross? Did you ever know that he took hell in your place? And none of you who listen to this today will ever be able to say, No, I didn't. Because I bring it to you now. What will your answer be to God in that moment? It won't be answering to your minister or your elder. Or your son or daughter, or your mother or father. No, it'll be answering to God. Did you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior? What will your answer be to God in that moment? Friends, I have good news for you today. You don't need to go to hell. But first, you must see yourself as God sees you and then fall before Him in mercy. But you know, just as we struggle in our sin to get our heads around the hellishness of sin and the just judgment of God, we equally struggle to get our heads as Christians around the grace that is ours in the Lord Jesus. You see, Christians are almost as embarrassed when it comes to expressing the depth of God's love for us. Just as we have this nagging doubt that hell will be that bad, Christians often have this nagging doubt that our salvation is really that good. And that leads us to our second thing today. The Bible feels no such discomfort. So let me highlight for you, secondly, the wonder of God's heart. Summarized in that verse in Romans 5, verse 20, where Paul writes, Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. When it's sin versus God's grace, grace wins every time. And today I want to remind sinners who have trusted in Christ for forgiveness that the guilt we experience is always going to be outstripped by his heart towards us. For you see, we have made a terrible mistake as evangelical Protestant Christians. For we think, and we've come to think of grace as a thing that we receive from God. But it's not. Dean Ortlund explains for us. That's Roman Catholic theology in which grace is a kind of stockpiled treasure that can be easily accessed through various carefully controlled means, but the grace of God comes to us no more and no less than Jesus Christ comes to us. In the biblical gospel, we are not given a thing, we are given a person. And how much more reassuring that is. Isn't that wonderful? You don't need to rely on your baptism as a child or an adult or your attendance at communion or confession or giving to good works or fasting or Bible reading or singing in the church choir or wearing your best suit on a Sunday or delivering meals to old folk or leading an organization or being a thoroughly nice guy or a hard-working girl to top up your grace so that's enough to get us into heaven. Thank God that's not the case. But when we receive Christ, and more accurately, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, Jesus, and I say this with biblical backing, Jesus is actually drawn to us in our sin. That's what we're thinking of today. Jesus is drawn to us in our sin. And that might cause some of us to cringe today, but that's where we enter into one of the deepest mysteries of God. Not only is he holy and sinless, but Jesus, because he knows us more deeply than us, the absolute horror of sin and where it would take us, and hates the thought of us being robbed of our joy. You know, let me give you this example: the more a man loves his neighbours, say a neighbour down the road, the more horrified that man will be if he hears that that other family, that other neighbour, has been burgled, his house is broken into the quicker he will be to call round with an offer of help, and he'll be really hurt on their behalf. And Jesus' heart is like that a hundred times over. His heart is always drawn out to help, to relieve, to comfort. His holiness finds sin revolting, far more revolting than any of us could feel. So even whenever we don't feel the revulsion of sin in our lives, Jesus does, and he reaches out to us. He comes to us. Or let me put it in another picture. Imagine a child who's been diagnosed with a terrible skin disease that makes them loathsome to look at. An awful thought, isn't it? A lovely little child and suddenly they develop this disease and their skin just becomes gnarled and twisted and grotesque, disfiguring their face and the features, and they become really horrible to look at. The sight of this child makes other people almost gag at the sight. It just looks awful. And other people turn away in horror. And other parents shield their own children from looking at this child because they'll have nightmares. This child's so disfigured with a skin disease. But then comes the child's mother. And whilst hating the disease and angry at the way it has made her darling child look, she looks past the skin and the unsightly horror for this is her child. And that hard sickness actually draws out more love from the mother. And that is the wonder of God's heart towards us. For we are gnarled and unsightly and sinful, but Jesus is all the more drawn to us. In our absolute ugliness, we are in a complete sight. Our lives are a mess. Sin has made us spiritually ugly and utterly detestable. But Jesus draws closer to us. And that's why I want to finish this morning, thirdly, as we watch the unfolding drama of Hosea. Hosea is an Old Testament prophecy recorded when Israel was crumbling at its worst and at its ugliest The cruel Assyrian empire was ready to storm Israel, but God's people are so caught up in their sin to notice that God's judgment is on their doorstep. And so the Lord sends Hosea as an acted-out parable, a a living illustration. At the start of his ministry, Hosea is told to take Gomer, a prostitute, a lady of well-known reputation as his wife. For her life is this acted out parable of God's people and their constant unfaithfulness and utter disregard for God's consistent love. I'll give you a second. Get your finger back into Hosea chapter 3 for just a moment. Near the start of the whole prophecy, the whole story. Hosea chapter 3. Have a glance down through those verses. And there we find Gomer's life at rock bottom. We read about her there in Hosea 3. She's in abject poverty, having been used and abused by so many men. She's been deserted by her so-called lovers, and she's having to sell herself once again. And as Gomer stood out in the marketplace of the town that day, about to be sold off for a highest bidder, what a horrible thought, a a, a beautiful lady being sold to the highest bidder. The phrase on most lips would have been that day, It serves her right. Because they knew her by reputation. It serves her right. And that was true. But the story takes an unexpected twist which stuns us. Hosea never stopped loving his unfaithful wife. He remained faithful to their marriage vows. So when God sends Hosea to buy Gomer out of slavery, he goes at once. He rescues her from the mess into which her unfaithfulness had taken her. Look at Hosea 3, verses 1 to 3. The Lord said to me, Go, show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. That's food given to idols. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and letek of barley. Then I told her, You are to live with me many days. Grace is shocking, But this was not cheap grace. It was costly. I'll leave you to do the homework to see how much it actually cost in terms of shekels and latex for Hosea to buy her out of slavery. But it was big money for his wife's constant unfaithfulness. He quite literally pays for her sin. Hosea's love for Gomer illustrated God's love for Israel. You see, God's grace initially leaves us stunned, but then it makes us fall down to worship God because we realize that this is our story. It's like the tale that evangelist and writer Rico Tice tells that imagines before Prince William met Kate Middleton that he went down to London's red light district in Soho and finds there a young girl who's lying comatose in the street having been with three men the night before, slumped beside a bin, lipstick smeared all over her face, clothes torn with a needle and marks all the way up her arm where she has been feeding her addiction. And William lifts her, and he carries her to Westminster Abbey and stands beside her with his family around him and the archbishop in front of him, and he says, "'This is the girl I'm going to marry. "'I have chosen her. "'She is mine. "'I want to make her my princess.'" And so there's fuss as servants run around and makeup artists and specialists are brought in to clean the girl up, to dress her in beautiful clothes, the most expensive that money can buy. And there before a watching world, the prince says, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. And they are married. At that point, everyone knows she belongs to him. No matter what. The media would be an uproar. The government and civil service would be going berserk. The palace would be in a pickle, but the prince commits to his bride publicly, and that cannot be revoked. This down-and-out girl has become the prince's principal love, and that is us. The smelling of sin with all our rubbish that comes with us Lying in the gutter of our evil ways, addicted to sin, adulterous and unfaithful by nature, the sinful rags to eternal righteous robes story. Better than any fairy tale you could tell your kids or grandkids. And that picture is illustrated for us in Hosea. And in Hosea chapter 11, flick on a few pages if you're still in Hosea 3, Hosea 11, in the passage that was read for us earlier, have a look with me in Hosea 11 as we finish. Look at Hosea 11 verses 1 to 4. They're heartbreaking because the image is switching there from God as a scorned lover to God now as the caring father who's been rejected. Any of you who have known any degree of separation from your children can feel God's pain in these verses. Look at verse 3, God the Father, who helped Israel to your feet. We've all seen those images. People even post them on Facebook and Instagram whenever their child takes their first steps. And, you know, the parents either side, you know, and they're trying to avoid the coffee table. What's the end of that chair? And there they are. They help them walk, get them to their feet. But here it is. He's saying that this child, who this father has lovingly helped to its feet, has now been rejected by the child he's now walking themselves. Look at verse 2 and verse 7. The more God calls, the more Israel runs away. And so a loving father must discipline a wayward child. This child should get what she deserves. Sin must be paid for. And then we read of a just judgment that comes in those middle verses, in verses 5 and 6 and 7. But as we read on in Hosea 11, what do we see? So many of all the loose strands we've been thinking about together all come and are tied up. God's own people in their sin. God's own heart revealed. Look at verse 9. We read, there God is the only holy one among us. He actually said that, the only one among you, the holy one among you. But we also read of his heart. Look at verse 8. A heart that has changed Probably not the best translation I've got in the NIV here. Some translations put it, my heart is torn within me as my compassion overflows. It's like God is wrestling in his own character. He knows that this is his child. He knows that this child is sin. How will he respond? But God looks at his people in all their moral filth, in all their waywardness. And look at verse 7. They seem determined to turn from me, settled in their stubbornness. So what happens Dare we ask, inside of God when he sees us in that state, a holy God and us in our sin, in our turning away like a toddler in a tantrum, walking away from that love once again? What do you expect of God or in our sin from God? What does the text say? Well, we are taken to the very heart of who God is and given a very rare glimpse into his feelings, and we see him, look at verse 8, his heart is is inflamed with pity and compassion for his people. Even in their sin, his heart is on fire with love for his people. He simply will not give up on them. Nothing will cause him to abandon them. They are his And we know that God is free from all sinful emotion. His emotions are never wrong. His heart is never twisted. There is no mistaking these verses. You've got dysfunctional Israel and disloyal Christians deserving God's judgment. But we read in Hosea 11 verses 8 and 9, God asking himself, how can I treat you like the other nations? How can I give you up, Ephraim? Ephraim is another name for the people of God. How can I give you, hand you over, Israel? His heart is broken. I can't do it, he says. Or the ESV version puts it. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboam? They're the, the foreign nations. My heart recoils within me. My compassion is warm and tender. And you see, it all comes down to verse 9. Verse 9 reads, For I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you, and I will not come against their cities. Is that what we expect from God? No. Let's face it. All of us would expect God to be saying, if he sees people in their sin, I am God and not man, the Holy One among you, and I will come against your cities. But that word, not, I will not come against their cities, changes everything. You see, the Bible says that when God looks at His people's sin, His own very Godness, the thing that makes Him God and not us, is what makes Him unable to crash down at us in His wrath. You see, we tend to think that because He is God and not us, the fact that He is holy means that it is all the more certain that He'll punish us for our sin, but we need to be corrected We are brought from our human thinking and creating God in our own image to seeing Him in all His grace-fueled beauty. And so we come full circle this morning, just as we have such a small view of our sin and what hell is and how it will be for those who have never found their shelter in Jesus Christ the Savior who took hell for us at the cross. So we equally, as believers, Has such a small view of the compassionate heart of God that took Jesus to the cross and saves guilty sinners. The sins of those who belong to God actually open the floodgates of His compassion towards us. For when we stumble and sin, the dam breaks, and it's not our loveliness that wins Him over. But our sinful ugliness captures his heart. Dean Ortland concludes, Our hearts gasp to catch up with us. It is not how the world around us works. It is not how our hearts work. But we bow in humble submission, letting God set the terms by which he loves us. And oh, how he's loved us.